Welcome to Cannabis Business Minds Podcast with your host, Simone Simaluka-Radson. Join me where I'll take you inside the ins and outs of this brand new and exciting business called cannabis. Connect with me on Calagia.com and follow us on social media as well. And here's today's show. On today's show, we're talking with Boston-based attorney and patient advocate, Chanel Lindsay. Chanel is the founder of Arden LLC. Arden is a Boston-based biotech and medical cannabis device company with pioneering technologies that drastically improve administration and effectiveness of cannabis. Chanel is responsible for the innovation and invention of Arden's suite of wellness and beauty products, which we'll get to hear about a little bit more in the show. But Chanel is much more than just an inventor. She's also heavily involved in regulation and helped draft the state of Massachusetts adult use cannabis law and is a founding member and co-chair of the Northeast Cannabis Coalition and the Council to the Massachusetts Patient Advocacy Alliance. Chanel, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks so much (laughs) for having me. Yeah, well, I mean, you have such an impressive bio and it's like, I was thinking like, how do we even get everything about you into one show? And I'm like, I think we're going to have to have so many more. Um, but all you have to say is she loves cannabis in all of its different forms. Yes, yes, totally. Business. There are just so many different aspects of this industry. It's amazing. It's so fantastic. And it's like, you know, especially with somebody that's like a lawyer, an inventor, somebody that does regulations, like you don't see that quite often in the cannabis space. And so like, I'm really curious if you could talk a little bit about your entrepreneurial journey in cannabis. Like, how did you get involved? Like, just walk us through, like, who are you? Absolutely. So my entrepreneurial journey in cannabis really started when I started using cannabis for medicine rather than just kind of recreation. And that happened for me after my son was born and I got an ovarian cyst. So my son's actually... Um, a junior in high school now. I can't believe that's actually, I can say that, but it's true. He's uh, 17 years old. And when he was born, after he was born, I got an ovarian cyst. And so cannabis was always something I preferred in college versus alcohol. It was just something that I, um, you know, thought was a better, safer alternative. But it was really a challenge when I started wanting to use cannabis and make it into something other than smoking. So making topicals, making edibles, making suppositories, all the things that would really help my ovarian cyst and keep me from having to use pharmaceuticals or have a surgery, that was all contained. The possibility was there using cannabis. So I started making edibles and topicals. And at that time, I really didn't have my mind towards cannabis as a business, but it was the underlying um, preparation that I was doing that was going to be the foundation for what my business eventually was. So for me, it just started out as me needing to use it and facing a ton of challenges when I did start making this medicine, mostly around the process of activating that medicine, knowing what that dose was, and then turning it into a, another product with as little frustration and hassle as possible. And honestly, back then, almost 20 years ago now, all it was was frustration and um, inaccuracy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was really frustrating. It was smelling up my entire house. I was using, you know, cannabis was super expensive um, back then before I started growing my own at a certain point. But even then, you know, you don't want to have to use an ounce of product if you could only need to use two grams of product. Like, it's just, it's just basic you know, it's common sense. 
Yeah. And at that time, like, so this is like 20 years ago, like you, like, did you have any mentors to guide you through like, this is how you make an edible or this is what dosage is or any of that stuff? So I had some mentors that helped when I was starting to grow cannabis, but when I was starting to process it, it was really something still that was very private. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't something I wanted to kind of advertise that I was doing. So the biggest help to me was the internet. And when I say help, I mean help and uh, like hindrance, right? Because the the internet was helpful in revealing that some of these concepts were there, like decarboxylation and other things. But when it actually came down to the instruction on how to do it, there was no real science behind it. And so you know how things get on the internet. One person takes one idea and then, it, it, then all of a sudden it's like playing telephone. By the end, you're like, you know, purple monkey dishwasher and you're trying to like get, you know, accurate cannabis medicine. Like it's not happening. And so, um, so that was the, the beginning of the journey that like kind of gave me the skill set that I needed to, to start a cannabis business once I eventually got there. But for me, I was actually, during that time, I was getting ready to go to law school. So I was actually pursuing a, a career that was much different than the cannabis industry, but actually that ended up being one of the biggest benefits that I could have ever had in this industry, which was being an attorney. Yes. And when you went to school, did you study like business law? Did you study criminal law? Like what kind of law did you study? So I went to Northeastern Law School in in Massachusetts in Boston. And it actually is a um, like has a social justice tilt to the law school. And um, so I obviously was really interested in making sure that being a lawyer, I was going to turn the world into a better place is like cliche as that sounded. That was important to me. But I actually became a litigator. So I was a business litigator, um, a civil defense attorney. So I worked um, at a law firm and I represented like Fortune 500 companies like Sears and Pepsi, everything from lease disputes to um, injury and product liability to insurance and employment disputes. So I really had a traditional legal career. Mm-hmm. And at that same time, there were really like two sides to me. There was this traditional legal career and then there was this woman who was who loved and what cannabis could do for her and was you know, living this better, healthier lifestyle when it came to treating my own medical problems through this amazing medicine. And so um, then medical marijuana, we kind of saw that on the horizon in Massachusetts. I saw that cannabis was actually coming to my state. And I thought, okay, I definitely want to be involved in the industry side of this and started thinking, how could I actually get involved in the industry side? And obviously I knew that I had at that time about 10 years of experience mm-hmm. making edibles, topicals and that kind of thing. And I actually thought, oh, I'm going to go and, um, and like teach people how to make edibles and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But in order to teach people, I thought, I, you know, it would be great to see and understand more of the science behind it. And a laboratory had opened up right down the street from my house about 20 minutes away. And I always say, you know, I think my story is a perfect example of how prohibition stifles innovation in science, right? Because the whole, the entire time, those 10 years that I was making medicine, I never had the ability to understand what was actually in my medicine because there was no laboratory, right? But then because medical marijuana was coming to Massachusetts, a laboratory opened up. And so I was able to go in and I think I was the fourth client in the laboratory because I know the owner really well now all these years later. And he said, you know, Chanel, you were like our fourth client ever. And I came in and I tested my medicine. And what do you know? 
this really important process of activating. So people don't know what decarboxylation is yeah. in, in the raw plant, in the flower, your the THC and the CBD are actually locked in an acid layer. And if you think about a key and a lock and the THC and CBD being a key and you want it to bind to your receptors so you can get the feeling and the therapy from the THC and CBD, when it has that acid on there, it's like the wrong size. So it's just going to kind of bounce off of your receptors and it's not going to be bioavailable to your body. And so you might think, okay, well, how do you get it from the acid form to the bioavailable form? It's heat. And that's, it's the reason why everybody who uses cannabis is either smoking it or putting it in brownies or some kind of heat. They don't know that they're doing it, but that's the decarboxylation step. But the problem is, is that that decarboxylation is so, um, it's really a scientific process and it's very precise from time and temperature. So when you're smoking it, you're actually like wasting like 80% of the available THC, believe it or not. Um, because, because it's too high and it's too fast and it's just like too hot. And even when people are making pot brownies, even me, after 10 years of becoming an expert at this, was only getting 70%. So there was 30% out of everything that I was using was just getting wasted, either not converting or burning off. There's like a lot of different ways that it can go wrong, yeah. but that's significant loss, even after being an expert, you know? So you can imagine what other people who are just trying it for the first time, they're really like, sometimes they're burning it all off. And so it can be very, very expensive and frustrating. Yeah. How did you know, you know, what percentage you were wasting? Like how, how would even somebody know that? Right. Cause I think, yeah. right, like, I think most people are like, Oh yeah, I got some flour. I'm going to smoke it. I think I'm high, you know, or I think I'm feeling this, but how do you know what percentage, yeah. you know? So it actually comes down to the lab test. And I tell this to people all the time, you can never, you can't just go by, Ooh, that made me feel good. Or, Ooh, my, my, my treats are always really strong. Like that's not, a objective like lab test and so what we would do is and what we do now we do a ton of testing all the time is you test your starting material which is your flour mm -hmm. so or your or your key for your concentrate because you can decarb all of those items right and so when you test that you'll see how much available THC or CBD is actually in there in the acid form how much could you actually have and then you test after you make the item and you see how much is there how much has been converted how much is still in the acid form and how much when you compare to the original test is just gone and that's what you'll see is is often people they don't really understand this concept so they'll go and they'll test like their final product yeah. and they'll be like look it's all THC and there's no THCA which is the acid form and you're like okay that's really good and you have five milligrams of THC what if I told you that could have been 20 milligrams of THC you can never tell by just that end test you have to have the starting material so you can compare what you had versus what's there and so that's what we do we do so many tests and do comparing of beginning material and calculations of how much that should be like once you extract it into something because re people really should know you know the, what they can get out of it and people using um so the decarboxylator I developed when people are using it they're using half as much and yeah. the, these are these are people that have been again using it for 10 years they're using half as much for people who are brand new to the space you know they're saving you know they wouldn't <laughs> honestly they wouldn't have stood a chance to be able to get where they wanted to be and that was one thing that was frustrating me a lot too during the process when I was at the lab like refining my process we saw people coming in and they were starting and trying for the first time ever yeah. and they would go and test their medicine and there would be like nothing in there so for them oh, oh yeah, wow there was one time there was one time a guy came in 
um, and he tested the medicine he's making for his epileptic wife and there was no active ingredient there. And I remember the lab owner, he was like, Chanel, can you give him a unit? You know, and I actually gave him one of our very early beta units, you know, because that was a perfect example of somebody who, now imagine that guy like didn't ever go to a lab because that's pretty sophisticated. To I was going to say most consumers don't even think about going to a cannabis lab. Yeah, like, you that's don't right. Search them, you know. So imagine that guy didn't go to the lab, he made it, assumed that it had THC in it, used it, it didn't work. What would their conclusion be? Cannabis doesn't work for me. Yeah. When really there was nothing in there. So it's really about like this, this understanding and being able to control it is so important. And I also started to see um, around that time, I started getting very deep into the policy in cannabis, right? I started to, I was invited to help write the adult use initiative that passed mm -hmm. in Mass. Yeah, that was so cool. Um, because, and again, being a lawyer, that that really helped the situation to be able to do that and um, really started advocating on behalf of cannabis because, in fact, um, after decriminalization happened in Mass, but before, um, before medical, I was yeah. actually arrested for having a small amount of cannabis on me. And I, oh, it, yeah. should, it should have been just a ticket. Yeah. But that I was arrested and I was in my car was impounded and I was like, you know, they were going to book me and bring me down to the police station. And it really showed me that like decriminalization is really never enough because it really leaves a lot of people still facing prosecution and arrest even when they shouldn't. Oh, wow. And that's like, I mean, cause then you think about like asset forfeitures and then how those governments make money. It's through the fines and the impounding and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And, and, and just the fact that, um, you know, there are, if you look at Massachusetts, there are certain yeah. communities that, there hasn't been a cannabis arrest in years and years in other communities where it's happening regularly. And we really yeah. need to stop that, you know, inequality that's it's happened under the yeah. law, especially at the same time, like how hypocritical that's happening at the same time as people are making millions off of yeah. cannabis. Um, yeah. So that's, that's always the challenge, I think. Yeah. Okay. So I, I'm, I've so many questions, but um, the first one is just about kind of now legalization. And then I guess we could jump back to, to your, your yeah. journey so in California, we have a lot of social equity programs. So, you know, in Oakland, there's a social equity program. In Los Angeles, there's a social equity program really to give more opportunity in the licensing for those that have been affected by the inequalities for social justice. Yeah. Is there anything like that in Massachusetts? Yes. Um, oh, really? One, but Massachusetts is actually the first statewide equity program. To what? Achieve. And we worked very, very, very closely with folks in um, Oakland, like Supernova Women, yep. which is here up in, in Oakland, and um, folks in on the East Coast that we had been working on equity with, like in D.C., um, mm -hmm. and now we're, now we're actually like pushing and giving it, um, paying it forward to places like New York and New Jersey, because yeah. just, we're just down there testifying there. But yeah, in Massachusetts, um, we fought from the very beginning of that drafting that I mentioned, right when we first got into the drafting, Shaleen Title, who's now a commissioner in Massachusetts, and I really started pushing for equity and building community support around the ideas of equity and it was a long fight through the drafting and then through our legislative rewrite but at the end of the day we have so many we have so many equity provisions in there um, 
econ priority licensing, which just is happening right now. So for people who are from areas that have been harmed by prohibition or who are dedicated to employing and improving those areas, they got um, expedited licensing for that. There's also going to be a technical assistance authority, even though it's not up yet. And, and that's the other thing about the equity programs. They're great in theory, but we really have to make sure that they are implemented the right way. Yeah. And I know that there are definitely challenges in Oakland around this, and certainly we're facing challenges in Massachusetts about just making sure that everything happens you know, as it needs to happen because there's very small and short windows of people getting in and access and kind of like after you already slice up the pie, it's way too late to try to allow people to come in. It's just too late at that point. So we have the econ licensing. And one thing that I'm so excited about is that when our social consumption and delivery comes online at next year that there's going to be exclusivity for people that are from the areas harmed by prohibition and small businesses so that's going to be the first of its kind but i i do anticipate you know another wave of advocacy and really fighting hard to get that done because um equity like everybody kind of agrees with it in theory but when it comes down to making policy around it you know there's a lot of pushback to um you know something that really should just be a no-brainer no, I completely agree. And I think it's like, you know, then you just say that, hey, we're in politics now, right? Nobody, not everybody's going to be happy. And I think that's what we've really exactly. seen, especially in LA. Like we were supposed to have, I think, started that social equity program in March of 2018. So this year, and it's just, you know, it's it, we, a lot of people just don't even know what's happening. There's yeah. like misconceptions, misinformation, but I guess, so my question to you now is like, will you walk us through, because I was so want to wrap this all into your entrepreneurial journey, but really we paint a timeline of like, you know, prohibition decriminalization when medical started and then the adult use, because you've obviously been heavily involved for more than 10 years into the cannabis and the politics, but what's the timeline? What was the timeline in Massachusetts? Yeah. So basically um, decriminalization happened in 2008. So Ooh, we, wow. Wow. In 2008 mm -hmm. and then it was like right after that that I was arrested in like 2009 and so it was kind of like okay decriminalization's cool um a great first step but really only a first step and yeah. and that's often how you know cannabis laws progress almost always you know decrim first and then um then moving on to medical and other things except some of like the CBD states but um and then 2012 is when we got medical and then 2016 is when we got adult use. So every four years, there was a ballot initiative in Massachusetts. And that's the great thing about Massachusetts and the other states that have legalized, I mean, except for Vermont and some other states now, like um, New Jersey, that looks like it's actually going to be like through legislative, um, which is wow. awesome, right? That's, that's, that I think is a, I think that's a huge, a lot of people don't talk about that very much. The move from having the people have to push for it to actually cannabis being something that the legislature is taking up and making change on, that's a, that's a huge step forward, you know, um, because there are many states, even like our neighbor, Rhode Island, they don't have a ballot initiative process. So they are going to have to wait for their elected officials to make that change. So it's good that people are setting the example for that. Oh. Um, and so, um, and so, yeah, in 2016 is when um, we got legalization uh, that our initiative passed. And then we had a six months where the legislature rewrote the bill and really tried to take out some of the important things. We had to fight back to get the fight to get those in. And then when that was finalized, then they, um, 
then they appointed the commission and then they appointed the advisory board and I was appointed to the advisory board um, for having an expertise in providing legal services to cannabis businesses and I'm also the chair of the market participation subcommittee on the advisory board and that um, advisory board subcommittee is really important because it is all about ensuring that women, small businesses, people who have been traditionally marginalized actually have a place in the industry. And so it was really important when we were writing the law to make sure that there were these specific things in the law that did talk about equity, right? And that made our commission have to do these things because it is, uh, and that's my suggestion to anybody who is interested in working on the policy side is make sure you're pushing these issues forward from the very beginning so you all have anchors all along the way to point back to, you know, why this is necessary and why it has to be done. Oh, 100%. Okay, so then 2016, it's passed, you know, six months, there's revisions. What kind of revisions did you have to fight for in that process? Believe it or not, when the House bill came out in Massachusetts, all of our equity provisions had been taken out. And we just found out now that there were a lot of um, donations that were going into the committee from some of the big players and people that didn't really want equity to be at the forefront. But that was actually a blessing in disguise because when those, when our meager equity provisions were taken out, we had the, the, you know, um, audacity to like try to take out the small bit that we had in for equity. Yeah. we had such a pushback from the community that we already started to get um, support from, including, including, including elected officials, that everybody pushed back so much that we actually ended up getting all of these equity provisions that I mentioned, the econ empowerment, the technical assistance, and co-ops, all of these other really amazing um, things that didn't exist before. So it really did end up working out with the legislative rewrite. And then, um, and then also I was really honored to just be part of the official um, implementation through the advisory board, because that was so critical, you know, having people and being able to push, you know, within that regulated system. And then Shaleen title was appointed to the commission and we would not have any of these things in place if there wasn't actually a voice on the commission that cared about these things. So that was really, really important too. Oh, wow. That's so impressive. And then how many, what's up with like the licensing? Can a lot of people get licensing in in Massachusetts? Are there a lot of, are there pretty big barriers to entry? I Like in California, the costs even to really open up a cannabis business, just with the, just how it's been set up local and then state. And then just the cap, just the licensing fees alone, it tends to be, you know, minimum about $500,000 investment, which is really hard for entrepreneurs. Yeah. So here in mass, um, that was a big problem with the medical side of the industry is that the application fee for medical was $30,000 and you had to have 500,000 in the bank to even apply. So obviously no one got in through that. So when we were rewriting the application fee is no more than $600 now and the licensing fee yearly is about 5,000, but there still is a lot of barriers to entry just because um, like our cities and towns aren't letting a lot of people in. So they certainly are, you know, the people with, tons of money and resources have the ability to go in and kind of woo these cities and towns away from the smaller players. So that's the fight that we're doing now is like educating people on the municipal level Mm -hmm. about the fact that they should be preferring these equity applicants and small businesses and local people. So that's kind of the next frontier. Wow. You're so busy. Okay. This is I don't know how you do this all, to tell you the truth. I'm like, wow, you're heavily involved in this. You're running your company. 
take us back a little bit. So you were like, I use a lot of cannabis. <laughs> it's because the cannabis is amazing, and it's it's you don't feel probably like you're working, but it's much more of a a fun thing, right? It's part of your yeah. life. So you spent 10 years, you know, learning about it, really learning how to make topicals. You were the fourth customer at this lab, right? And yeah. when did you have the idea to start Ardent? Like, when did you make that shift from, you know, corporate lawyer and litigation and product, which I'm assuming helped, has helped you so much with running your business, to making these topicals to, okay, you know, medical now past, adult use is on the horizon. Like, when did you make that jump to, to say, I want to start my own business? Yeah, so when I saw medical marijuana was on the horizon, that's when I kind of started stepping away from my traditional legal career a little bit. Basically, I left, I was working at the State Lottery Commission. I was their director of human resources and their employment council. And I had a couple of offers of people that I knew that wanted me to take on their cases privately, just on the employment law side. That's what I was doing, employment litigation. So there was actually a woman, a pregnancy discrimination case. This young lady was like eight months. She got fired like a week before she gave birth um, from a from a fertility clinic, believe it or not. It was really crazy, but um, it was, um, she had a ton of damages and I went and I saw, I was like, okay, let me leave my job. I have these cases that I can settle. And I settled those cases and, you know, made some money from those cases yeah. and, um, and then started turning my time to doing the development. So really the aha moment was yeah. when, that test came back and showed me that I was only using 70%. I'm like, Cause I'm like, wait a minute. I'm not, how can I go? My plan was to go help people make edibles and make topicals and make products. And I'm like, how can I help them go make it if we can't even get it to a point where they're not wasting a ton. So I started doing more and more tests at the laboratory and honing in on like the, okay, if what I was doing, so I was using the crock pot in the oven mm -hmm. and what I, ended up discovering is that the crock pot in water is just never going to boil at high enough temperature to decarb. You're never going to be able to get more than 70% before you start destroying some. Oh, that was a huge breakthrough because a lot of people, including me had been using the crock pot for a decade, you know, then yeah. the oven is like even worse because the oven doesn't even have a, like a solid temperature, like boiling water. It's just, it, it changed. It's, it fluctuates. Even like five degrees fluctuation is a problem for decarb. It has to be like super, super tight. So once I figured out that number one, it's lab grade precision, what those heating cycles were, and the fact that nothing in the kitchen could get that done for people, I thought, okay, well, it's time for me to make something that would be able to get that done. Because what if there could be something that was so simple that people could just put their stuff in, press a button, and when it comes out, they could eat it or they can make whatever they want and they know they got a hundred percent out. So that just became the mission at that point is to make something really simple, cute, um, and easy for people to use that would like take the fear out of it too. Right. Because I saw a lot of people interested, but then they were just like, Oh, I don't know what I'm taking or I don't know what it is. And it was just like, listen, guys, calm down. Everybody it's calm down. <laughs> Everybody <laughs> calm down. Like it's not as scary as you think, but also like to be fair, it is, it was, it was a pain in the ass before. You know what I mean? Like I mentioned, I, I lived, um, I had my own house and I was on my own acre. When I made cannabis in my kitchen, my neighbors could smell it. Like oh, that's really, 
yeah, that's not something that's going to allow people to use it. So that was a big thing, making sure it doesn't smell. So like there were all these like different annoyances around the process that would keep anybody but somebody like who loved it as much as I did from doing it. Like I wasn't, I wasn't naive to think that everybody all of a sudden was going to be like, wow, I want cannabis to be every single part of my life. And I want to learn about the science. If they want to, that's cool. They can, we should have the testing results, but if they just want to get from A to B, Mm -hmm. that too. And I think that there are so many people they want, they're, they're interested, but they just want it to be simple and they just want it to kind of flow in with their regular life. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so for our listeners, they can't see the video. So you were showing the Nova that you invented, right? Oh no, we're not on video. I like well, we're on video. Okay. <laughs> we're, we're, you and I are on video and I'll do some YouTube stuff, but like oh, nice. this is, I mean, cause it's distributed through iTunes and all that stuff. Oh, nice. So we'll show it for sure. But Whatever, what are what are you showing me on video right now? So I'm holding up my little beauty. So basically, the decarboxylator. It's a a lot of people call it like kind of a thermos looking device, right? Because yes, it looks like a thermos. Yeah, it's about the size of like two coffee cups kind of stuck on top of each other. I love it because it's so portable. I actually like carry it around in my purse. It's small enough that you can take it with you. And it is a precision decarboxylator. So it has a thermal heating layer that's all the way wrapped around the cylinder and shaft. So it gets this incredibly precise and blanketed heating all over. Um, and then we also use two sensors in there. And um, it activates the material. It creates these perfect heating cycles so that your, whether it's flour or keef or concentrate, is fully converted. So all of the THC or CBD is active and ready for you to use. And so when it comes out, literally it looks the same as when it went in, like a bud. It's a little yeah. bit darker in color. But you could immediately just eat that bud or just put it into food. Because it's an active material at that point. And that like blows people's minds yeah. all the time. They're like, wait a minute. Wait, wait. You can just sit and you're like, yeah. And you don't have to eat a lot of it. It's tiny, tiny bit because it's so potent. And it is very, very, when you think about, if you're getting all of the THC, just think about this for a minute. Let's say your average plant has 15% THC. And that's a little bit on the low side, but it's an average, I think, if you're you know um, not in a, in a super regulated market. Um, Every gram, if you're getting all of it, every gram has 150 milligrams of THC. Think about that in every single gram. So if you're somebody who wants wow. 20, yeah, so right now when people are doing it, they might only be getting like, you know, 50 milligrams out of that or, you know, 100 at the most, but they could be getting 150. So think about if you only needed 10 or 15 milligrams, that's like 10 servings in one gram. You're talking about just like a little sprinkle like pepper or salt, you know, and then think about if it's key for concentrate. You're talking about tiny, tiny little bits in order to get the result that you're looking for. And so that, that like kind of just an, the idea of approaching cannabis differently you know a lot of people are very confused even if they've been using cannabis for a long time they're really used to making like a butter or an oil and, and sure you can go and do that but you don't have to do that you could just pair your activated material with butter or oil to improve the um absorption you know just add a little coconut oil into your stuff rather than having to go through that whole extraction process and so it's just giving people tools to use it different ways and people can like make suppositories, they can make lotions, they can really make any 
product that they see on the dispensary shelf or can think of in their mind, they can make very easily and quickly. And oh I think that God, I love it. Was this your because you've invented several things, I think. Like you seem like you are a problem solver. Was this your first invention? Yeah, so this was the first invention. Okay. Carboxylator, and then also um, while that was happening, I also developed these sublingual wraps. So a lot of people ask, like, what do you do with it after all the different ways you can use it? And sublingual underneath your tongue is like the best way for absorption because mm -hmm. it it's super clean. You're not um, getting all of like the CBN like when you're smoking, and you don't have to wait like an hour and a half like when you eat. It just um, it it's pretty fast uptake. And so if you activate this material and then just put it under your tongue. You can get therapy just like that. So I developed these little wraps, like these little pouches, and you can put them in and then put it under your tongue. And again, those pouches have like vitamins and other things too. So what we're all about is like cannabis is part of like part of all of your vitamins and nutraceuticals. You know what I mean? Is like you, you can start you can start improving your health by incorporating cannabis like as a vitamin. And yeah, so. Yeah. And then what about, so talk to us, cause we, we have a few more minutes before we can get to the speed round, but so you come up with this idea, you know, you have a team, obviously like talk to us about the process from like idea to launch to, to recruiting your team because you're doing so much and you're running this awesome business. So I, there's always, I think a lot of entrepreneurs struggle with, I have an idea, I've launched it a little bit, but then really to get it to the point of scale, to get it to the point of, you know, being able to step back and be able to do all the things that you're doing, there's, there's some hustle involved. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's definitely difficult. I, I think that that is the minefield, right? From idea to actually getting into production. You know, a lot of people have great ideas and then it just fizzles out because there's so many things that can go wrong, especially in the cannabis industry, because it's like there, there are so many additional barriers from payment processing to people who just don't want to work with you because you're in the cannabis industry. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it was um, also very difficult to raise money you know, being a woman, being a woman of color, it's like, it's, it's, it's not simple to get people to kind of buy into your idea. So for me, um, my mom was my first investor and I took that little bit of money and really just went and did a lot. I use a lot of outsourced, um, yes. labor outsourced, like Updesk, uh, Upwork. It used to be called Updesk, but Upwork was like my best friend, um, being able to, um, go on Alibaba and different places and source items. So I actually went and got, you know, CAD drawings and electrical schematics and things like that from contractors that I hired overseas. Mm. And I also went and, um, just started taking those CADs and getting them, you know, small batches of product take, you know, delivered and then having people put them together stateside and just, I would say my best suggestion is just get beta units, get prototypes, just get as much, push it as far as you possibly can, because the more and more you bring that idea to life, the easier it is to get people to buy into it. Yes. And so, um, so for us, it was, um, a couple of years of development. And then in 2015, it was getting like, you know, getting all of the, um, getting a prototype together and getting beta units out. And then 2016 was all about moving from beta units that were very expensive into full production in the factory. And that happened by the end of 2016. And for the last year, we've been up in full production. And now it's about scaling. Because one, one of the challenges we've had is we've just never had enough product. You know, that's a good, people are like, oh, that's a great thing. 
problem to have. Yes and no, because you really just want to grow your business and, and be able to bring that revenue in. And if you, if you have a lot of interest and then you can't deliver, sometimes that interest fizzles out. So you really, it's really about like timing and hitting the market at the right time and also making sure your business is lined up the right way so that you'll be able to sustain whatever success that you get and, you know, continue to grow it. Oh no, absolutely. Cause I think when you are in the, in the moment of scale, it's all about cash flow, right? Like, do you buy all this stuff, but you have to pay employees? Like, when are you going to have revenue if you're trying, you know? And so it really goes into just knowing your numbers, right? And like really being able to look at, at detail and, and anticipate the market. And we stay very, very lean. I mean, even yeah. our team right now is five full-time people and yeah. some contractors, you know what I mean? So it is very, um, it, it was really important for us to just like do the best, we'll do what we had with what we, you know, do the best we could with what we had, you know, yeah. Yeah. it worked out well. Oh, excellent. Okay. Are you ready for the speed round? All right. It's, <laughs> All right. I, I, here, I sound a little nervous there. I know. I'm like, I'm like don't. <laughs> like it's, I feel like every time I ask somebody this, they're like, ah, uh. I'm like, it's, it's you. It's your questions. You know them better than I do. Um, so what's one piece of advice that you would tell someone getting into the cannabis industry? Network and, um, and offer up your services, right? One thing I've noticed is that people are like really interested to get into the industry and they're looking for like, oh, where's that full-time job that exists that I could just apply for? It's not the same as a regular industry. A lot of times the, the, um, the job or position comes from just the fact that you're around and available and people see that you have value. So the best way to get in the industry and to get the knowledge that you need and on the team that you want to be on is just to show up and start developing relationships. I'm always amazed at how far people, how far I see people getting in this industry just for being there and being a reliable, per trustworthy person that people can depend on. And all of a sudden I look in the next day, they're like running a dispensary. So um, that's my advice for people is just like be there and be present and you'll find like your tribe basically. Excellent. Excellent. What is your why? Like what can, I mean, you're doing so much. What is your why? I think it's a mix of health and, you know, professional and personal like um, goals. As I mentioned, I've been using cannabis for a really long time. And so for me being able to show so many different women that there are, less toxic and happier ways to be healthy than the things that they're doing now. Um, and then on the same time, like removing that stigma from cannabis, because that's something that really hurt me. Um, like, like emotionally and in my spirit going along is really seeing people and cannabis users being placed in this negative light. When I was an attorney, when I was, when I was starting this business, you know, people who use cannabis are always just like the butt of the joke and, and all this other thing. And, it, and it's really frustrating. And now it's kind of uh, like, Oh really? Now the people that kind of scoffed at it are now turning to it. And sometimes it's because they have really serious health problems. And yeah. now it's like, wow, not only is this thing that you were really um, turning your nose up at, not only is it legal, but it's something that is very valuable to you now. So, so being able to kind of see that um, evolution of cannabis is like, wow, that really keeps me going and gives me hope about, you know, that it can actually reach its full potential of what it has the ability to do within our society. Oh gosh, I can't. I mean, that's the whole thing is like cannabis can solve so much. And I think it's that 
the stigma is so real. And I mean, like I've been in the space, always a cannabis consumer, like since I was in high school, but like I've been in the space, like out of the closet, whatever, since like 2014. And it's just crazy still like people's, you know, kind of perception on everything and judgment, unfortunately. So I thank you for your why, because we need to continue the dialogue and it's becoming so much more mainstream, but it is interesting that there is still that stigma. And it's still, even when it's becoming mainstream, there's still that like um, danger that as it's becoming mainstream, that those kind of, um, those ideas or um, like stereotypes will become more ingrained if people yeah. aren't like, like intentional about understanding what the culture and what the space is all about. Yeah. Oh, 100%. No, that's, I mean, that's why we have to be smart and how we, you know, talk with everybody about cannabis and education. And that's what's so awesome about what you're doing. And that's why I appreciate podcasts. Yes. Uh, minds because it's, it, it is, you know, we are kind of teaching each other and carving out and blazing new paths, you know, and it's so important for people to kind of, you know, that that's why we were able to make the strides that we made before in equity that I was talking about is really just being in tune to everything that's happening because it is, it's happening so fast. Like I'm sure, you know, people always say cannabis years are like dog years, you know what I mean? Because everything happens so quickly and you really need to be aware. You totally need to be aware. Oh my God. Okay. Last question. Uh, where do you see yourself and your company a year from today? Well, I see us um, launched, launching our new consumable products because, as I mentioned, we have the decarboxylator, but we have all of these different um, capsules and lotions and other um, kits so that people not only can make and activate their product, but then they can use that product to make dispensary-grade edibles really simply and other products like suppositories and other things. So, um, so we're launching that, and I expect Ardent to be growing. We're actually... Um, um, also like mentoring some other companies in the space. So I'm super excited about those companies and those products that are coming online. And then um, I really hope that um, in a year from now, we see delivery and social consumption up and running in Massachusetts and that these first initial retail and manufacturing and cultivation licenses are up and running and you know thriving and giving back to their communities. Oh, excellent. Well, I can't wait to touch base on all of this stuff. And yeah, I'll give you an update. <laughs> yes. Oh, no. I'm like, oh, I'll be following up with you like every month. Um, but thank you so much for joining uh, Cannabis Business Minds. And just how can people, you know, connect with you, hopefully on Calagia, but where else can they connect with you? Yeah, absolutely. And people can check out our website, um, www.ardentcannabis.com. And um, we love to talk to people. So we'll look out for you guys reaching out to us. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining. Thank you. And thank you all so much for listening to Cannabis Business Minds. I'm your podcast host, Simone Samaluka Radzins with Calagia. Connect with me on calagia.com and we will talk to you next week. Thank you for listening to today's show. This is your host, Simone Similuka-Radzins of Calagia.com. I hope that you find this episode entertaining and insightful. My goal is to educate all of you about this exciting business because knowledge is power. If you haven't already, head on over to Calagia.com to connect with me and to meet other business leaders in the professional cannabis community. Also, if you like this, please go into iTunes and leave the Cannabis Business Minds podcast a five-star review. See you next episode.